You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, church. Reading this morning is John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. And as I read, just consider the theme of forgiveness. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Thank you. Thanks, Robin Ann. Good morning, everybody. Hope you are doing well. It's good to be here on this beautiful Sydney morning to sing, to, to open God's Word, to have it read to us, to have Word Man. How fun was that? Uh, so, so good to see him again and, uh, and to pray together. Anders, thank you for that beautiful prayer. Um, I don't know about, about you, but uh, we look at things like the earthquake in uh, Turkey and Syria. It's just so confronting, so overwhelming. 50,000 people lost their lives and probably more. Um, we'll find out. And it's, uh, it's overwhelming. So thank you for leading us in prayer. It's right for us to cry out to God. It's right for us to cry out, how long, O oh Lord? Um, I got a call from... Uh, our rep at Open Doors, Gabe, you may remember him, Open Doors, about serving the persecuted church around the world. And he wanted me to let you know that a year and a half ago, when we, we raised money for Open Doors on behalf of Christians fleeing Afghanistan, you'll remember the Taliban took Afghanistan again, Christians fled the country and they fled to surrounding countries. We raised money for churches in those countries to support people refugees well open doors wanted to let us know that some of the funds that we raised a year and a half ago they're being used now those churches are using the funds we've given them to help victims of this earthquake so that's encouraging i was encouraged to hear that so thank you for your past generosity uh it's making a difference thank you and can I encourage you, if you want to continue to be generous, please do. Just head to opendoors.org.au. Although I'm sure there are other organisations doing things to help the crisis over there. Well, what a passage we've got today in front of us. Again, I'm realising I feel like I say that every week. But in this series, wow, we've picked some crackers, haven't we? This, this is a beautiful, wonderful passage. I'm finding out, for a lot of people, it's their favourite. Have you got a favourite? 
it's kind of funny to say I've got a favorite part of the Bible. Like I don't like the other bits, but I like this bit. But for a lot of people, it's their favorite story. And I can see why. I can really see why, because it's got a lot. It's like any good movie, like any good TV series, it's got a lot in there. It's got drama. It's got villains, doesn't it? It's like not too many words and not too few. It's really pithy. feels like it's perfectly weighted. And like every good story, I think there's a twist. And it's a twist that keeps you thinking. I think it's a twist that really keeps you thinking long after you've heard the passage read. We are in our series titled, as Anders said, If It's True, where we're exploring the Gospel of John, looking at claims, looking at famous passages, looking, you know, if this is true, man, what does it mean for our lives? Up until this point in John, Jesus has been doing a lot of teaching, a lot of teaching, not all of it easy to grasp. After our passage, there's more teaching. And right after our passage, Jesus says these words, I am the light of the world. And he goes on to talk more about that. I am the light of the world. And this story is right in the middle of it. It's almost as if throughout all of this teaching, we needed an illustration. This passage, I think, is what we call applied theology, which is the only good theology, in my opinion. Applied theology. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And in this passage, we get to see what that's like. I am the light of the world. Let me show you what it looks like. Let me show you what it looks like when light comes into contact with darkness, because in our passage, there's a fair bit of darkness, isn't there? There's some dark motives, some dark actions. And it really all seems to be leading to an unavoidably dark conclusion. How is the light of the world going to deal with this one? How is the light of the world going to bring light to this situation? Is that even possible? Well, that's what we're going to explore this morning. Our passage begins with Jesus teaching a crowd in the temple courts. Up Up to this moment, Jesus is still popular with the crowds. He turns up, he teaches, he draws a crowd. People turn up. They want to hear what he has to say. His popularity with the people is still there, but his relationship with the religious establishment isn't going well. It's going from bad to worse. And that's the tension we've got to know when we come to this passage. Popular with the people, religious establishment, really, really disliking them. I mean, they can barely hide their jealousy at this point. They can barely hide their hatred of him, their desire to want to get rid of him, to kill him. That's the tension. Don't forget it, okay? So here's Jesus teaching a group of people about the true nature of God, about grace, about the will of God, and a murmuring goes through the crowd. Something happens, takes people's attention away. Small group of people come through the crowd. What's going on? The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, that is a good chunk of the religious establishment, they come through the crowd and they're dragging a woman. Dragging, maybe half naked, we don't know, but dragging a woman through the middle of the crowd and they plonk her right there in the middle of the courtyard. This has definitely got everybody's attention. 
You imagine if that happened right now, you would not be thinking about what I was teaching on, right? All your focus would be on the drama unfolding before you. Crowds no longer focused on Jesus and his teaching, but on the real life drama that's sort of playing out in front of them. What's going on? Who are these men? What are they doing here? Why is this woman here? We're about to find out. This woman is plonked on the ground and the religious men speak. What do they say? They say, Rabbi, means teacher. Teacher, this woman, this woman was caught. Was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, you know it, we know it. In the law of Moses, you know what punishment she must receive death, stoning by death. Teacher, what should we do? What do you say we should do? Man, talk about a tough situation. Talk about a heated moment. Doesn't get much more emotionally charged than this, does it? You can feel it, can't you? It's, well, it's so well told. Life and death hanging in the balance. What's Jesus going to do? What's the light of the world going to do? Well, a few things to note before we get any further in the story. Okay. First thing. Here's a question. It's my question. Where's the man? Do you think about that? Where's the man? As my mum used to say, it takes two to tango. It's very difficult to commit adultery on your own. Where's the man? Where's the bloke she was supposedly committing adultery with? Why is the woman the only one singled out for punishment? See, the religious leaders, they're pretty quick to point to the law of Moses, aren't they? Jesus, the law of Moses says, but you know what? It actually turns out they don't know the law very well because the law clearly states both parties are guilty and deserving of punishment. It's clear. So where's the man? The truth is we, we don't know, but does this give us a hint about the circumstances that led to this woman being so cruelly dragged in front of the crowd. I mean, it gets your mind going. How, how did this situation come about? Maybe, maybe the Pharisees asked a man to seduce this woman and he was allowed to sneak away while she was hauled off. Maybe. Maybe she was in a relationship with someone. A, a, a not very good relationship. Maybe she was committing adultery with a man and, and the man betrayed her for a price. Maybe she was deceived. Maybe she was coerced. Truth is, we don't know. But let's face it, any of these scenarios are not legal. They're not moral. They're far from legal, and let's face it, they're 10,000 miles away from anything good or righteous. And John gives us a clue, doesn't he, in verse 6? Right? What's the clue? Here it is. They were using this question as a trap. You notice that when Robin Ann was reading? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So why are they doing this? To trap Jesus. 
right? To trap him. These teachers of the law, they're not that concerned with the law. They're not that concerned with upholding the law, the law being followed. They want to use this woman and her situation as a trap to get rid of a threat, to get rid of Jesus. They're not concerned about justice being done. This woman is a pawn in their power game, and she may well lose her life in the process. They could care less. Man, are you, are you feeling the hypocrisy of the situation yet? Because we're meant to. You feeling angry? Good. I am. We're meant to. I mean, what kind of sick and perverted people set up something like this? Right? It's twisted, isn't it? It's twisted. It's corrupt. And Jesus will point that out. What despicable links are these religious, moral people willing to go through in order to get rid of Jesus? I mean, is this what we're to expect of religious people, of moral people? Do they speak for God? If they do, it kind of explains why people can be pretty put off by religious people, don't you think? Here's a question. In taking the word seriously, in taking the law seriously, which is not a bad thing, here's a question. How does one treat people when they struggle to obey? How are people treated? Is there love, compassion? What's the fruit of their fervor? Is grace hard to find? I, uh, I began my first ministry vocational role, that is I started working for a church over 10 years ago now. And when I started, I remember having a conversation, I'll never forget it, with someone who was about 10 years ahead of me. And um, he was sharing with me what it was like for him when he started in vocational ministry. And I tell you what, he was honest. He was very vulnerable at this point. He shared with me his struggle. He said, you know, he told me, as he received his first ministry role, he felt the exhilaration of significant spiritual authority and how he was just really tempted to use his position and his knowledge of the Bible as tools to control people, to exert authority over them, to get them to do what he wanted. He used these words. He said, I was like a policeman using a nightstick to control a rowdy crowd. Whew. At least he was being honest. I'll never forget that. Now, thankfully, God had shown him that that was his temptation and he was doing a work in him. Showing him it's not the way. It's not the way of Jesus. But unfortunately, it is the way of the world to use what you have to exert authority over others. Jesus says it, to lord it over others. You won't be like that. That's the world. You follow me, you won't be like that. But it is in the world, and let's face it, it does exist in the church. Too often. But friends, may we remember, may we remind each other 
that the gospel is never a weapon to wield in combat. The gospel, it's not something we use to beat people into submission with, right? The gospel is a cool drink of water in the desert for thirsty people. It's not salt poured on an open wound. It's a balm. It brings healing. It's a balm for sinners like you and like me. It's something that brings comfort and relief. The gospel's not a weapon that kills. It is a bandage that heals. Teacher, this woman was caught. Caught in the act of adultery. You know it. We know it. Our law says she should be put to death. What should we do? Can we just take a moment to think about this woman? At the centre of things. Let's take a moment. Imagine what that would have been like for her. Put yourself in her shoes or bare feet. Put yourself there. Can you imagine being hauled out of bed? Probably naked, I don't know, maybe draped with some bedclothes. Standing in the, kneeling, sitting, standing in the middle of a crowd. I mean, you could not be feeling more vulnerable, could you? It's a patriarchal culture. These men, they have the power of life and death over her. She knows it. And now she's in front of some teacher named Jesus. She may not know him. And she's just thinking, he's probably just like every other leader. He's going to condemn me for what I've done, right? No other possibility. How could there be? I mean, talk about vulnerable. Talk about exposed. Talk about shame. You ever felt any of those things? Have you ever, ever been caught have you ever been caught red-handed? I have. I've caught my kids red-handed too. And it doesn't stop them trying to get out of it, right? They're literally holding the paint in their hand. It wasn't me. It's not mine. I don't know whose it is, right? Caught red-handed with... There's just absolutely no way of explaining your way out of it. No way of, of activating this, this preacher I follow sometimes. He talks about activating your inner lawyer. We all have an inner lawyer and they're very skilled at getting us out of things. It wasn't me. We can explain so well. But being caught red-handed, you can't. You ever been exposed? That word's powerful. You ever been exposed publicly and just had your sin laid bare? before others. Tell you what, there are not many things more humbling. There aren't many situations that are more uncomfortable, let's be honest, my goodness. And yet, as we'll see, these things can be used by God if we let him. They can be used by God as key moments for healing, for restoration and redemption. How does Jesus treat those who are vulnerable? How does Jesus treat those who are exposed? How does Jesus treat people who are filled with shame? We're about to find out. All eyes are probably on this woman. Yep, 
And this passage has become known as, was sort of titled, The Woman Caught in Adultery or The Adulterous Woman. And I was struck by something I read this week. Um, they wrote about the possibility of renaming the story. And I had to do a double take. I look back in our Bibles and it doesn't have a title. And those titles anyway were inserted long after the New Testament was written. But in our Bibles, it doesn't have a title. Throughout church history, it has been known as the woman caught in adultery or the adulterous woman. But this person put forward a case of renaming the story. And it got me thinking. Doesn't need a title, but could we rename it? And they offered some suggestions, and here they are. You want to hear them? Here they are. Renaming the story as the sinful men, the abusive leaders, the hypocritical religious scholars, the abusive religious leaders. That's a different take. Now, as I said, it doesn't need a title, of course, but it does make you think, who should the focus of the story be on? The woman or the religious leaders and their sin? You know, speaking of the religious leaders, oh, don't you reckon they must have been pretty pleased with themselves when they concocted this little trap? Don't you reckon? They must have been high-fiving. Oh, we've got him. We've got him. Win-win for us, lose-lose for Jesus. We've got a great trap. If he says, yes, you're right, the Lord does say this, we should stone her, he loses all popular support because he's become known as embodying kindness, compassion, and love. So he'll lose all credibility with the crowd if he says, yes, let's stone her. If he says no, he loses all credibility as a teacher, right? Oh, they'll say, oh, well, you don't care about the law? He loses all credibility. As a teacher, we have him. The perfect trap. And I, I think the two ways the religious leaders see this confrontation playing out are the two ways most people conceive of God. The two ways most people conceive of religion. Struggle to conceive of a different paradigm. Let me explain. Here are the two ways, right? Obey the law, forget about the law. Obey the law, forget about the law. They're the two ways. Obey the law, that's religion, isn't it? Do what you can to get to God. Or turn your back on it. Do whatever you want. We might call that relativism. Religion, what is it? You fulfill the law. Do your best to follow the rules. And if you think you can, if you think you've done that, what does that breed? I'll tell you what it breeds. It breeds pride. It breeds self-righteousness. I can do this. Why can't others? And you look down on people. Does that remind you of anyone in our story? It breeds self-righteousness. Religion also can be, I, I try to fulfill the law, but I can't. I can't do it. And what does that breed? Despair. Maybe the woman in our story, I don't know. That's religion. Or the other way is, you know what? It doesn't matter. Do what you want. The, the law doesn't matter. There's, there's no moral absolutes. You're not accountable to anyone's all relative. They're the two categories, right? 
Do the law, forget about the law. But there is another way. Thank you, Jesus, there is another way. And he will show us. Let's keep going in the story. Well, the religious leaders, they put their question, their carefully crafted trap to Jesus. And what does he do? It's a weird bit. What does he do? He bends down and he writes in the sand. He writes in the ground. It's a strange little detail, isn't it? Jesus refuses to be immediately drawn into this showdown, maybe. So he bends down and starts writing on the ground. What's he writing? <laughs> lots of people have suggested lots of weird things. What's he writing? We don't know. But it has been suggested maybe he's doing that to avert people's eyes away from the woman. Maybe. Maybe he's buying some time. I don't know. The religious leaders, though, whoo, they won't let up. They're badgering him. They are still questioning him, reminding us of the single-minded the religiously single-minded. And you can feel the temperature rising. You can. The intensity is building. How is this going to end? The only way seems death. Death of this woman or death of this teacher's credibility. Well, finally, Jesus does reply. Finally. I don't know for how long. He finishes writing on the ground and he stands up and he faces the people who bring this trap to him, the religious leaders. And his reply, don't miss the mastery of his reply. He says, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It's really, it's so well known, isn't it, that line? It's, it's become almost proverbial, hasn't it? Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Go ahead. Stone her. But first up must be sinless. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, it's up there with Jesus' most brilliant lines, and he's got a lot of them. Go ahead, stone her. You want to have a go? Oh, you sinless? No, oh, unlucky. The reply is brilliant for lots of reasons, but let's just focus on one because here it is. Maybe this is the main one. It shifts the spotlight. Yeah? It shifts the spotlight from the woman to her accusers. All eyes have been on the woman. Now the focus changes. Now, Jesus isn't saying, let's just get this out of the way. He isn't saying all lawmakers... All judges, all witnesses in the witness box must be perfect. He's not saying that. All of those people, they've got to be perfect before they can cast a verdict. No, no, no. He's not saying that. What's Jesus' aim here? It's pretty obvious. His aim is to get to the heart of these men who are so quick to accuse this woman. You who are so quick to point out the sin in others, let me ask you a question. How are you doing? What is the state of your heart? It is a profound question. <laughs> How would you answer? Friend, what's the state of your heart? How would you answer? Because at this point, I've been really digging into the religious leaders, haven't I? And it's, I've kind of enjoyed it. 
because they are an easy target. But we've got to be careful because it's so easy to make the religious leaders out to be the villains and distance ourselves from them. I am nothing like them. But how often have we thrown metaphorical stones of judgment on others? What's the state of your heart? How often do we compare ourselves to other people? Think about it. I'll let that one sit for a moment. How often do we compare ourselves to other people? Making ourselves feel better by focusing on their obvious sin while happily ignoring the sin in our own lives. All the while carefully crafting a mask to cover up the sin, the guilt and the shame. But Jesus He'll have none of it because he can see through it. Forget this woman, let's talk about you. Forget those other people, let's talk about you. Forget your husband, let's talk about you. Forget your wife, forget your, your friend, your coworker, your child. Let me deal with them. I am uniquely qualified to deal with them because I know everything and you don't. So let me deal with them and let's talk about you. It's a far more difficult conversation, (laughs) far more confronting, far more difficult. But it is the one that brings life. It is the one that brings healing. Truth is, we are all too ready to pick up stones in judgment of others. But friends, let me urge you, drop your stones. Drop your stones. We are not qualified to throw them. Well, Jesus drops the bombshell, his incredible reply, and goes back to writing on the ground. Weird. Maybe now drawing attention away from the people who were leaving, giving them dignity. They skulk away. That's what happens. Jesus' reply has landed and it's having its intended effect, right? Because who among them is gutsy enough to say, yep, that's me. I'm sinless. I'll have a throw. Who among the accusers will come forward and declare themselves perfect? No one. So they slink away. I love this detail. The oldest ones first. (laughs) It's included for a reason, I think. Maybe the older we get, maybe the less sure we are of our moral purity. The longer we live, maybe just the more we see. The more broken we realise the world is, the more broken we realise others are, and the more broken we realise we are. And now only two people are left, Jesus And the woman. The whole crowd's been dispersed. Amazing. Not by tear gas, (laughs) right? Or the riot squad, or by passionate imploring. No, by a sentence that cut to the heart. Wow. Two people are left. Jesus finishes writing on the ground. He stands up and he engages. He engages with the woman. He speaks to her. He says, woman, where are they? 
(laughs) Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She replies, no one, sir. Jesus replies, then neither do I condemn you. Go, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus gives dignity to this woman who has had to endure a profoundly difficult thing. I think we can relate to that. And he asks her a question, doesn't he? Woman, where are they? His question isn't, so why did you do it? His question wasn't, what's gotten into you? Explain yourself. Woman, where are they? He takes her seriously, doesn't he? Notice that he takes her seriously and he takes her sin seriously. He doesn't acquit her without question. And the woman's reply is brief, isn't it? She doesn't try and defend herself or heap abuse on her accusers. She just says, no one, sir. And what Jesus says next is showing us the way, friends. Please, let's not miss this. He's showing us the way, the way of the gospel, the way of Jesus. He doesn't say, I condemn you. And he doesn't pretend that her sin never happened. Or that sin doesn't matter, right? Jesus, he embodies both righteousness and compassion. And we often think those things can't come together. Well, they do in Christ. See, the world can only grasp of what I was talking about before. Obey the law or forget the law. But Jesus refuses to be put into either category. There is another way. Jesus is happy to give you the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's happy to give you the truth. And it's what? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're full of sin. In fact, you're probably more sinful than you think. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for the pick-me-up. You probably are. But here's the other side of the same coin. You are more loved than you can ever comprehend. You're more sinful than you realize. You're more loved than you could ever, ever comprehend. Jesus says, I know you're sinful. That's why I came to save sinners. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How many of us have mixed that up, though? Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus was surprised by this woman's sin? Do you think he was taken aback? Do you think he was surprised? (laughs) He knows. Friends, that's why he came. He came for sinners. He came for this woman. He came to reach the lost, people like me, to reach the lost, to save those who are far from him. And Jesus doesn't diminish sin either. He doesn't say, forget about it. It doesn't matter. No, he says, go and sin no more. Cut it out of your life. Sin's a big deal. Otherwise, how do we explain the cross? Of course it matters. But let's finish on this. We're going to finish in a moment. Let's finish with this thought. Oh, man, those words are so powerful. Neither do I condemn you. Powerful words. 
But I wonder, I honestly do, I wonder how often we think it is actually God that condemns us. I wonder how many of us really think that. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. I'm not talking about repentance and faith, which is the daily practice of the Christian, repentance and faith. What I'm talking about is this. How many of us truly believe that if we were absolutely vulnerable like that woman, half naked, exposed in many ways in in front of people, if we were that person, if we were her, vulnerable, exposed, our sin hanging out there for all to see, how many of us think in that moment actually God would condemn us? What do you believe? What do you believe about who you are before God? How many of us think actually I would receive punishment, not grace? Why is grace so hard for us to understand? The truth is, it's because we receive it nowhere else but from the hands of Christ. Today, friends, may we be reminded that, of course, there was one in the crowd there who was uniquely qualified to throw a stone, wasn't there? He who was without sin cast the first stone. It's Jesus. He's the one who could have thrown a stone. Did he? No, he didn't. He could have, but he didn't. Instead of casting a stone at her, instead of casting a stone at you, instead of casting a stone at me, he will stand in her place. He will stand in your place. He will stand in my place and he will receive a massive amount of stones. I'm talking about the cross, of course. Jesus is uniquely qualified to condemn us because he is the true judge of the world. But he did not come to condemn. He came to save. How can God show love and grace while upholding his law? How can he do it? The cross. It is the ultimate answer to this question. And may we, friends, may we be cross-shaped people who go to him again and again, the fountain of grace and mercy and forgiveness. May we go to him again and again, the light of the world. And may we extend what we receive to one another. And then, friends, we will be the light of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we are in awe of you. We are incredibly grateful for the grace you pour out upon us, grace that we don't deserve. We want to admit this morning that we struggle with this. There's a part of us that believes we, we are condemned by you. 
that we don't stand before you blameless because of Christ. There will be people here that have never experienced the freedom of forgiveness. And I ask that you would work in their hearts today, now, because you are a living God. And for people who are Christians, Lord, we want to come to you again and again, the fountain of mercy and grace and forgiveness, and we want to experience it. We want to experience your love for us. We freely admit that we are sinners, and therefore we want to receive your grace. May our lives be shaped profoundly by this forgiveness, by this grace that we have received. May we extend it to others as you make us into a people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.